0: You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar tone. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now.
1: The new phase we're going into, uh, related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it.
0: Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem.
1: It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after.
0: For December 23rd, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Well, it's finally here. The last episode of our show and what has truly been an Annus Horribilis. It has been a dreadful and painful year for everyone, including me. We still managed to put out a show every two weeks without interruption all through the year, because that's what we've promised our subscribers. But believe me when I tell you, it wasn't easy. I'm sure we're all eager to put 2020 behind us now and start thinking about a fresh start in 2021, with the prospect of being able to get vaccinated and get back to some sort of normal life at some point in the year, and with a U.S. president who is putting climate action front and center in his agenda, instead of trying to halt climate action and tilt the scales in favor of fossil fuels any way he can. So I thought we might consider what the Biden-Harris administration will mean for energy transition, for America's relationship with the rest of the world, and for global action on climate. But I didn't just want to do a show about everybody's wish list for all the things they'd like to see out of the new administration. I wanted to try to understand what's likely and what the top priorities need to be. So I turn to our friend and longtime supporter Morgan Bazillion of the Colorado School of Mines, who last joined us in episode 99 to talk about rare earth metals and other minerals used in the energy transition. Morgan has recently written several articles about what America needs to do to get back on track with its climate action plan. He has also had ample experience working at the World Bank in D.C., among other things, and he knows many of the people who will be involved with the Biden administration on some level or another. So he's got a clear-eyed perspective on what we can expect from as well as what the climate action priorities need to be for the U.S. at this point. It was a pleasure to have him back on the show, and I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you will too. Then, in the news segment of this episode, we'll have a look at a couple of record-breaking solar and wind projects, we'll observe ExxonMobil's declining fortunes, and as a bit of a coda to episode 135, we'll recognize three new major moves toward divestment from fossil fuels. And now, our conversation with Morgan Bazilian, recorded December 3rd, 2020. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Morgan, to the Energy Transition Show.
1: Thanks, Chris. Great to be back.
0: You've had a long career in energy, including as lead energy specialist at the World Bank, over two decades of experience in energy, natural resources, and environmental policy, international affairs, and you're a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. So since you've spent many years in and out of Washington, D.C. and their political circles, I thought it would be fun to have you back on the show to share your expectations for what energy and climate policy might look like under the Biden-Harris administration, because although there's tons of Wish lists out there, and particularly things that people would like to see. I'd like to just get your expert opinion on what's likely, because although there's no shortage of wish lists floating around, I just haven't seen a lot of articles about what's actually likely to happen. So I wonder if you want to just kind of start with some broad expectations there.
1: Sure, Chris. Yeah, I think that's the question that's being asked by a lot of people. As we saw, as soon as biden was declared victorious by the news agencies the various recommendations flooded the media outlets and so we had the plans that you alluded to there was 10 point plans and nine point plans and 41 point plans etc and then there were even longer ones hundreds of pages from places like that clean energy for biden work so i think there's a lot of good ideas in there and almost all of them, at least initially, took for granted that there would be a hostile Senate, that is, that the Senate would still be in Republican control. And of course, as we know, that that depends on what happens in Georgia in a few weeks. But those various lists have a lot of sane ideas in them, and I think quite a few of them could be likely. So perhaps you could start with the overturning of the things that Trump overturned. So going back to Obama era regulations in a lot of cases is fairly doable because the rules or legislation or regulations existed and they were overturned so you can just overturn them again. That has some issues we can probably come back to later about durability because of course if they can be overturned once or twice, they can be overturned three or four times. Right, But those ideas at least have language, they have gone through process, they have been analyzed, and you could go back to several of those. So that's at least a first issue that can change. Another one that can change fairly quickly is just changing the personnel and the sort of goals of agencies and departments. So you could, relatively easily see how a new administrator at the EPA, for example, or at the Department of Interior or Energy, et cetera, even Treasury could change things relatively quickly in terms of some structural issues, in terms of budget focus, in terms of overall focus of those places. So I think there's some pretty quick and relatively obvious opportunities. A lot of those, it should be said, stem from Obama era thinking and Obama era people. So what you're seeing as Biden builds his team is a lot of resonance with that former administration, which is of course, no surprise. That's how human beings work. It's certainly how the US government works. But I would think that the ideas that were popular during Obama's presidency would be some of the first to come back under Biden.
0: Yeah, for sure. We're definitely seeing sort of a back to the future thing here. So speaking of that, you and your co-author, Dolph Geelan, recently published an article about how Joe Biden and his climate envoy, John Kerry, can rebuild America's climate leadership on the world stage. So just starting with that, that lays out a number of essential areas where we can clearly expect the Biden administration to take action. And then I think I'd like to talk about the domestic and international implications of those actions. and, And then maybe we can wrap up this interview with some observations about the major appointments to his team and what we can expect from them. Does that sound
1: reasonable? Yes, sounds great.
0: Okay, so why don't we start with John Kerry? I mean, he's a decorated war veteran who's had a hugely distinguished career, including as Secretary of State under President Obama, before that as the Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts, and as a state senator from Massachusetts for 28 years, uh, former presidential candidate, but of course, also a longtime champion for U.S. action on climate change. In fact, he was the person who signed the Paris Climate Agreement on behalf of the U.S., And of course, he's known and worked with President-elect Biden for decades. So that appointment alone seems like a pretty clear and significant stake in the ground, doesn't it? That we're definitely going to be taking action on climate.
1: Yeah, I think that's clear. They did that for several reasons. But one of the most important, I would guess, is simply the optics of it, which is exactly what you just said, that we are going to put in... An impressive and long-time U.S. leader into a role and the narrative has been rolled out already multiple times that okay you have someone of Senator Kerry's stature coming into the role and he knows the building he knows the process of course and he has a seat at the table that's the cliche that he has a seat at the National Security Council table and the ear of the president. So I think that it will have content, of course, but it's also a symbolic gesture to do exactly what you just said that says we are serious about climate and here's here's how serious we are. So I don't think there's much argument over that particular point. Some of my thinking around it is that while that symbolic narrative is important, and I'll come back to this later in the conversation too, it really needs to come with some humility around the other narratives that they're bringing out about U.S. leadership and even things like naming and shaming, which were part of the Biden campaign climate plans that said, not only are we going to come back to the table, but we're going to do things that name and shame countries that don't do their part for climate change. Mm. That latter aspect, I find a little bit absurd. It doesn't have much self-reflection to it, and it, it goes back to these stories about American exceptionalism and other fantasies that have clearly been decimated under the trump administration and to believe that you know as an example leaders in the european union need the u.s to come back in that kind of way is absurd so yes is an important hire and will hopefully i'm sure do a great job but it needs to be done with some humility then we can get into the domestic and international of course he is in there i think mostly as an international focus but perhaps that's not the case that he'll have both a domestic role and an international role but as they've said as the campaign has said early on that we'll go back and re-sign the paris agreement on day one sure that's a no-brainer it takes almost nothing to do that and would put us back in a seat at the table but it doesn't have that much content to it so again There needs to be some meat put on the bones of these high-level narratives. So, yeah, I take your
0: point, though, about this naming and shaming question. I mean, clearly, after the Trump administration, the U.S. is living in a glass house and ought to be very careful about throwing stones, right? So beyond rejoining the Paris Agreement and, and mending our relationships with other countries, Biden's clearly indicated that he'll be keen to reverse many policies that the U.S. had put in place to take action on climate change that Trump rolled back. So what other policies can we expect
1: to be reinstated? Yeah, so this goes back to aspects of that list, the various lists that we talked about, and there's no shortage of them. So according to some of your research and others, there's over a hundred of these environmental regulations that have been undone in some way or the other. The ones that come to top of mind fairly recently and are things like the methane emissions from oil and gas rollback. That one seems like a pretty obvious one as an example. So when the Trump administration decided to roll back methane regulations from oil and gas, even the industry responded and it didn't take them much time. I mean, you saw a letter from Exxon come into the press within a day of that methane emission regulation rollback. So it was pretty clearly not in the interest of the industry nor the environment, obviously. And it's a little difficult to tell why they would have done something like that. Of course, guessing about the incoherence of the Trump administration's environmental record is not worth anyone's time, but that has already come to bite the industry in the form of the recent cancellation of the contract between LNG and the LNG suppliers in the United States. So we saw a $7 billion 20-year contract for LNG canceled. Due to what the French government called, I think, quote unquote, dirty gas from Texas. Now, it has the complication in that case that it's not exactly clear what they meant by dirty. Were they talking about methane emissions or were they talking about flaring, which mm. is sort of a different story? Yeah. But, you know, regardless of what they were talking about, that is not. A Greenpeace ship sailing out to stop an LNG tanker. That is the French government canceling a seven billion dollar contract. So that got everyone's attention. I use that example because you immediately saw the negative implications for the market and the industry. They, I assume, were trying to help in some way, and um, backfire. Spectacularly. So there's no shortage of these things from land use to weakening protections for wildlife, et cetera, et cetera. So can you restore all of those reversals? I haven't looked at the full list of the hundred to see which ones you could and which ones you couldn't, but from what I understand, you know, there's a fairly decent amount of them, a percentage above 50 that could be restored relatively easily and you would guess that that would be a high priority again as we discussed at the beginning of the conversation because the language and the analysis is just sitting there and in a lot of cases they were reversed in sort of poor form as was the case with a lot of stuff under this administration. Yeah, I mean, Trump wielded
0: the executive order pretty loosely, right? Just to destroy all sorts of things. But as we all know, it takes a lot longer to build something than to wreck it. So I'm glad to hear that you think that maybe. 50 some odd things could be restored pretty quickly through an e-o from biden but i'm also wondering more specifically about some of these particular issues so obviously we're going to restore policies designed to cut greenhouse gas emissions we're going to be returning back to a gradual ratcheting down on emissions from power plants i think we can expect probably more policy support for renewables and that kind of thing yeah And what about the Obama-era shadow accounting that he required the federal government to do, to account for carbon and to calculate the social cost of carbon costs? That requirement was imposed on all U.S. government agencies. They had to start actually accounting for what their carbon impact was, and everybody understood that that would provide a foundation for the U.S. government being a leader in terms of decarbonizing its own activities. Do you think that is likely to come back as well?
1: Yeah, I do. Those kind of internal issues, look, let's look at the genres of kinds of things that might come back, not only those things that are reversed, but those things that were being developed or considered under Obama. And we're leaving out legislation here. We're leaving out the hope for a widespread legislation on specific climate stuff. Although there even is a chance for those kind of things in say infrastructure spending. So there's absolutely the possibility that you could frame something that was attractive to both sides on infrastructure spending. And that's worth going back to, because that could be significant, especially in light of this rare opportunity to create a meaningful stimulus and a package. So you have a recovery needs that need to happen first, and then you have stimulus. And that could be in the form of focused investment on things that have a beneficial impact on climate change mitigation. But okay, let's leave that for a second and go back to the kind of things you were talking about. There's the thought that you would reuse the various tools under the clean air act that you would refocus the epa and various other departments onto these regulatory aspects that includes places like FERC, the regulatory committee that deals with cross-border electricity and natural gas you could see them doing things like they've started to the ruling to modernize the grid and distributed energy. You could see carbon pricing coming from there. You could see some aspects of carbon pricing coming from the EPA, of course, and the clean air act. So you have that sort of genre. You have the people that are pushing hard for a large scale government procurement programs. And that would be related to the social cost of carbon accounting that you discussed. In other words, not just from the department of defense, but things that have been in place in the US government for decades like the federal energy management program FEMP then you could have we already discussed investment and stabilization and those kind of things so and then you have like we touched on just institutional stuff you know what you do with the budgets say the department of energy and how you look at increasing our R&D etc so and even doing something about the 45Q tax credit for CCS There's no shortage of these kind of things that you could either refine and augment. In other words, they've been doing something under Trump, but they haven't been front and center to things that you would bring back. And then there's of course new stuff, but the new stuff is a little harder to see it coming forward in the short term because there's so many other things you could do that are sort of more obvious or existing. And then i think you'll see a laying off of this suing states for things which is you know absurd so california's various emission standards for vehicles and this kind of stuff that you'll see those pieces of litigation go away right away i would assume so no shortage of things that you can do And likely things that you can do kind of quickly, but whether you do it as, what did David Roberts call it, a blitz, you do everything by executive order on day one, or you do it through the agencies, I think it matters a lot about the process and how you go about the pace matters and how you look at winners and losers matters, et cetera. But we could maybe get into those kind of lessons later in the conversation as you like.
0: Right, before we move on to some of those more specific sort of domestic policies, I wanna quickly touch on the international side of this because Trump had prohibitions on discussing climate change at international gatherings like the G7 and G20 summits. How do you think that'll be different under the Biden administration?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, I don't think there's much doubt that you will see a re-engagement on foreign policy and mending relationships. Biden has a long career in that area in foreign policy, and and you'll see that through the various multilateral organizations, and you'll see that through the various multilateral convenings. So you mentioned G7, G20, sure. and You'll see it at the UN Climate Conference, the UNFCCC and throughout. So yeah, the U.S. has been a non-helpful partner, especially on climate, but on quite a few other things too at those meetings. So we just had the G20 summit hosted by the Saudis. I think at the next G20, under the next presidency, you'll see the U.S. re-engaging and insisting or helping to insist that the climate and energy paragraphs, as it were, become more robust. And you'll see as we said, going back to the Paris Agreement, of course. But all of that international discussion, at this point, really, the US has to rebuild some credibility and durability. So now the partners, our allies and otherwise, see pretty clearly how quickly the US can change on these topics. And that's going to take a long time to rebuild. And it's not entirely clear you can fully rebuild that trust, which is at the heart of these international affairs and geopolitics, because they know very well that while Biden got over 80 million votes, Trump got over 70 million votes. So it is not unclear to our allies and partners that the U.S. is not a stable partner on some of these things. And so I think they're going to have to think hard going back to some of the other questions we said that the only way to rebuild that trust is by showing that we rebuild at home. We mend things that happen domestically. And that that comes back to that point about the pace of change. If you do a blitz of executive orders and you name people czars or czars, then that doesn't have the same confidence building that showing people you understand that you need to do things that are durable and that you can actually transact things that are durable that are not so easy to reverse by an incoming administration. Okay, so I'm combining there the international with the fact that the domestic has to be on strong footing. Otherwise, the international, the diplomats in the State Department and otherwise really don't have much foundation What did Thoreau say? You can build castles in the sky, but you must build your foundations first. That seems to be pretty clear. It's not very easy to understand how you would do that, but I don't think without a focus on that, the rest of the stuff has much salience or validity. Yeah, well, I mean, clearly putting... Carry
0: out there as the climate envoy is intended to convey the seriousness and to give the international community some confidence that we are serious and that this is something that has the full force of the U.S. government behind it taking action on climate again. And I think as far as repairing our own house, you know, again, Trump rolled back more than 125 environmental regulations. A lot of them had to do with restrictions implemented under the Obama administration for the release of methane from oil and gas wells. The Trump administration allowed increased drilling for various minerals, including in protected areas like the Tongass National Forest of Alaska and Anwar Refuge, weakening protections for wildlife under the Endangered Species Act. I mean, all these things are going to have to be reversed, I think, for the US to sort of restore its credibility in terms of putting its own house back in order. But I want to specifically talk for a minute here about the issue you raised a minute ago, which was California's waiver from the federal air pollution limits under the Clean Air Act, which allows California to set stricter limits than the federal standard for vehicle emissions. And that was revoked under the Trump administration. And since I think 13 other states now follow the California standard, that action definitely slowed down what had been a steady improvement in gas mileage for new vehicles that had been happening before Trump. And that also helped advance the transition to electric vehicles. So you know, I wonder how much of a priority you think that's gonna be, or if you think it's likely that California will get its waiver back and that the other states will start moving along more rapidly on reducing the emissions of the transportation sector.
1: Geez, I hope so, Chris. I mean, you're more of an expert on that specific policy than I am, certainly, and its implications. And just going back to what you said there, yes, the international community sees Kerry as a serious person. There's no question about that. But they also know that in four years or in two years or something, he could be gone. Yeah. and. So that's what I mean about the durability of this stuff. Right. That if you don't think about the durability, certainly it's very clear to international allies of the United States that they understand that ephemeral nature of how U.S. politics work, maybe better than we do. And so coming up with bluster and impressive people on day one just does not fully mend relationships. Yeah, sure, it's a nice band-aid, but it needs a hell of a lot more than that. But yeah, then going to the domestic action, as I said, I think you're immediately going to see the federal government ceasing to harass places like California that want to go ahead with more progressive policy and leaning in on things. And, you know, I think that those kind of policies in the transport sector, CAFE standards and other processes under vehicle emissions they should be absolute priorities for climate policy right so people in our genre if i can the focus tends to be on electricity and power systems and while there are links to power systems through electric vehicles to transport you know, transport is really the area where you need to see a lot more effort and focus and understanding. And it's not as cool or sexy in some way as thinking about power system policies and walking out on the regulatory aspects of the ISOs and the PUCs and the NARUC, FERC, and the other acronyms we can come up with. But that is the most obvious place to begin and not not solely a focus on electric vehicles but certainly a strong enabling environment to see a non-linear growth in them and if that happens through waivers of the clean air act and things like that then it seems like a totally obvious one and the other point why that's so important is not just because the transport policy needs to be much more of a focus on Domestic, well, and international, but domestic climate policy, but that the states have been leading for a long time. So that they were doing important work and leading on everything from oil and gas regulation to, you know, as we're discussing now, transport policy to electricity policy under Obama and under Clinton and under Bush. So the states really need to be empowered as part of this new approach under Biden and that state focus might allow for that durability we've been discussing and therefore help the optics and the narrative. So I think that example you give is important for various reasons. Well, I agree that the transportation sector is key now. I mean, it's now
0: the sector responsible for the most emissions of all the different sectors in the U.S. and in much of the rest of the world as well. So definitely a priority. I agree. You know, I want to turn now to the U.N. climate conference coming up in November 2021, so about a year from now. That'll be the first time that the countries will have to evaluate their progress against the Paris Agreement. And further, under the terms of the Paris Agreement, everyone is expected to sort of ratchet up up their reductions. So what do you think the US might be expected to do? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Renewable energy developer and operator TerraGen announced on December 10th that it will build the largest single solar and storage project ever at the Edwards and Sanborn Solar and Energy Storage Project in Kern County, California. The project consists of 1.1 gigawatts of solar and 2.2 gigawatt hours of lithium-ion battery storage. Site construction will commence in the first quarter of 2021 and is expected to be completed in the fourth quarter of 2022. Sleuthing by the Sierra Club in the wake of the announcement found that the project appears to be starting up with several community choice aggregators as the initial buyers of the power, but the project's size suggests that the developer expects to sign more buyers in the future. Mm-hmm. Item 2. The most powerful wind turbine to be used in a floating wind project has been installed as part of the 50-megawatt Kincardine Floating Offshore Wind Farm, located about 15 kilometers off the coast of... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at transitionshow. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.